0: The following sermon audio has been brought to you by Christ Church Downtown. For more information, go to Christkirk.com.
1: And all God's people said, Amen. Let us rise and worship the triune God. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desires of those who are in awe of him. You will hear their cry and save them. Amen. Amen. The scripture reading today is from Psalm 76, verses one through seven. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. In Salem also is his tabernacle, and his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the arrows of the bow, the shield and sword of battle, Selah. You are more glorious and excellent than the mountains of prey. The stout-hearted were plundered. They have sunk into their sleep, and none of the mighty men have found the use of their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, Both the chariot and the horse were cast into a deep sleep. You yourself are to be feared, and who may stand in your presence when once you are angry? Lift up your hearts. Let us pray. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, here we are, like the children of Israel, with the Red Sea lapping at our feet and the broken flotsam of the chariots of Egypt floating in front of us. They had the evidence of your great power in front of them in the destruction of Pharaoh's army. We have more. We have what they could only look forward to. We have the cross, the grave, the empty tomb, your victory over sin and death. So like them, lift up our hearts and voices in praise. Accept our worship, O God of armies, for we stand as your servants, your warriors, having been invited into your presence and consecrated to do your will. So guide us now in the name of our Captain Jesus, And amen. Amen. Young men, look out, for the lips of an immoral woman drip honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps lay hold of hell. These words from Proverbs 5 are lessons and wisdom given from a father, mostly to sons, who are princes, rulers to be, So we shouldn't be too surprised that he's dealing expressly with what we might see as a temptation common to young men. If you see these words directed to princes, you must consider that these young men had the world at their fingertips. You could say that the temptation of women was well within their grasp, much like the young men of our day. King David was ruined by his sin and his son Solomon, who saw the consequences, also fell in this area. But to be honest, or better yet, realist, we know that young men are quick, too quick, to ignore warnings, as if the waving red flag is a signal to charge instead of stop. We don't look out, and the writer of the section of Proverbs anticipates this and highlights the outcome. Continuing, and you mourn at last when your flesh and your body are consumed and say, how I hated instruction, and my heart despised correction. I have not obeyed the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to those who instructed me. Well, if we're going to properly confess this sin, we need to dig a bit deeper to its source. C.S. Lewis, in his Weight of Glory, writes, We are like half-creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Yes, young men, and men in general, We are far too easily pleased to look out, missing first what it continues in this passage to say, for the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord. They're before the Lord's eyes always, and we're not looking up. And second, that in lusting for what's not ours, we are like ignorant children, missing that infinite joy of pleasing our Heavenly Father. We are not looking ahead. So we want to confess, confess, put the porn, the fantasies, the false praise away Seek his infinite joy and purpose for your life. Don't wait until you are consumed. Look up and look ahead now. Seek him now. Psalm 85, verses 1 through 7. Lord, you have been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob, and you have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sin, Selah, and you have taken away all your wrath. You have turned from the fierceness of your anger. Restore us, O God, of our salvation, and cause your anger towards us to cease. Will you be angry for us with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. Dear Heavenly Father, we fear you, for in you we know that we will find mercy and forgiveness. Too often we have lusted for what is not ours, and then reached for more, through the technological riches of our age, through our phones, through our computers. We confess that we have not heeded your danger warnings. We have not considered that you know all that we are doing. We confess that we have not been satisfied with the sawdust and toilet water, or we have been satisfied with toilet water and sawdust instead of fresh bread and wine. And we confess that we have not looked to the joy that you have set before us. Finally, we confess that we have not confessed our sins to others and sought help. Therefore, we call out to you, Confessing our folly in this pursuit of death instead of your life. So hear us now as we confess these and our individual sins and Sila. we ask all this in the precious name of our lord and savior jesus and amen please rise for the assurance of pardon isaiah 33 verse 22 for the lord is our judge the lord is our lawgiver the lord's our king he will save us just because just because the lord is our judge he's our lawgiver and king he merits our confession it's his law His rule that our sins have mocked. But thanks be to God, He is merciful. For there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved except for the name of Jesus. You have confessed Jesus as your Lord and confessed your sins. And so it is with great joy that I declare to you that by the blood of Jesus, our righteousness, your sins are forgiven in Christ.
0: Thanks be to God. Amen. The sermon text this morning is 1 Corinthians 13, the whole chapter. These are the words of God. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Nothing. does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, And now abide, faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Father, there is nothing more that I want than to see you face to face. After all of this long dimness, to behold you in perfect glory is my chief desire. And so I ask this morning that this would also be the desire of all of your people here this morning. So change us now by the power of your spirit, and we ask all this in Jesus' name, and amen. may be seated. Well, this morning, I want to begin a new sermon series with you entitled, The Love Chapter. The Love Chapter. And I'm planning on preaching at least four or five sermons from this text. I might take the whole year to preach through this chapter. Because y'all need it. I need it. I need it. Um, And so, uh, really, the goal of this sermon series for us is, is to ask the question, is our definition of love truly biblical? Is my definition of love and God's definition of love the same? And if not, where do we need to change? Now, that chapter that I just read is one of the most famous and beloved chapters in the whole Bible. I think probably next to the Sermon on the Mount and John 3.16, 1 Corinthians 13 is known by believers and unbelievers alike, It's so famous, in fact, I found out this chapter has its own Wikipedia page. You know, thought, I guess every chapter of the Bible should have its own Wikipedia Wikipedia page, but this one especially. So I looked at it, and um, I want to read you a few of the notable uses of 1 Corinthians 13 that, uh, according to Wikipedia, this is what, what they said. U.S. President Franklin D. Roosevelt took the oath at his inauguration in 1933 with his hand on his family Bible open to 1 Corinthians 13, FDR. A British prime minister, Tony Blair, read 1 Corinthians 13 at the funeral of Princess Diana in 1997. Bob Dylan paraphrases verse 1 in his song, Dignity. I heard the tongues of angels and the tongues of men wasn't any difference to me. And the list goes on. There are tons of other uh, writers, composers, musicians, artists, politicians, and more who have quoted or appropriated 1 Corinthians 13 in some way. Some of those uses quite evil, as in the case of a certain Seattle rapper named Macklemore in his song Uh, Exalting Homosexuality, Uh, but I will save that maybe for, for next time. So, uh, this is a very well-known passage, even to worldlings. Now, how many of you have heard the love chapter read at a wedding before? Okay. Yeah, it's a, it's a common text. Now, think about how the context of a wedding shapes the way you hear or mishear Scripture. When you hear the word love at a wedding... What are your associations? Now, I've been to a couple sad weddings, but for the most part, our associations, uh, it's true. Uh, There's nothing worse than a sad wedding, right? When the parents aren't there, they don't approve or something. But for the most part, weddings are typically times of, you know, romance, beauty, uh, white dress, dancing, honeymoon. Love, you know, the feels, you, you got that. The butterflies, you know, you think love, it's girly, okay? When you think wedding love, it's kind of girly, if you're a guy, at least. <laughs> now, uh, Now, I'm not against emotions or sentiments, but if that's all that we take away from the word love, That it is just a bride and a groom staring at each other with googly eyes before the altar under the spell of romance. Then, what happens when I say something like, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God? Or when God says, You shall love your neighbor. Or when Jesus says, You should love, you must love your enemies. My enemies are not people that I want to dance with. They're not people I really want to spend any time with at all. They're not very pretty. So if wedding love is the only category of love you have, you're going to have a hard time understanding the fullness of God's love. The God who says he is love. Because even on the natural plane, you understand there's many nuances to love, right? There's parental love, a father's love, and a mother's nurturing love. There's brotherly love, when you link arms together. There's the love of friendship of all kinds. There's all these different shades to love. But for Christians who have the gospel... We have the revelation of something altogether special, and that is redemptive love, salvation love. Do you realize that only Christians possess this kind of knowledge of love? This is a foreign concept to anyone else, because only our God saves. Only our God, the triune God, is love. The scriptures tell us that love is not a tame thing. Love, Solomon says, is stronger than death. It is at once more rigid and immovable than a mountain and yet as meek and kind as the summer breeze. Love is the sum of ten commandments engraved in stone. And those ten commandments, the sum of 600 other commandments... Love has an inflexible law that undergirds it, and yet love fulfills that inflexible law. So 1 Corinthians 13 is a chapter not just for weddings. This is, as Tim Bailey says, this is a chapter for divorce court. That's when you need to pull out 1 Corinthians 13, not when you're in the first blush of love. But when a husband says, I just don't love her anymore, when your kids are driving you up the walls and you just want to hit them, it's when your patience is tested, when you got to then discipline those kids, that you need to pull out the love chapter. We want to embroider this. We want to put this on you know, calendars. Put it on the wall, put rose petals on it, but this chapter is covered in blood. And so perhaps the best place for us to start in this sermon series is to just confess up front that we really have no idea what love is at all, or at least our understanding of love is deficient in many ways, because I have yet to hear about this passage being read and obeyed in divorce court. And that's what this chapter is for. So that is uh, an intro kind of to the whole sermon series. Is our definition of love truly biblical? And if not, where not? So what I want to do in this first sermon is two things. I want to ask the question, why does Paul write this chapter to this church in Corinth? Why is the love chapter in this book and not another And then secondly, we'll unpack the first three verses. That's as far as we're going to get this morning. So first up, why did Paul write this to the Corinthians? First Corinthians is, after Romans, the longest chapter in the New Testament, or the longest letter that Paul writes in the New Testament. And whereas Romans is written as a missionary support letter, disguised as the greatest theological treatise ever conceived, 1 Corinthians is what we call a pastoral or occasional letter. Okay, there is an occasion for it. And can you guess what the occasion was? Well, the Corinthians were acting up. They're acting up, and so Paul has to write to them. Paul had planted this church on his second missionary journey, and word had gotten back to him from Chloe's people. Chloe's people. We find out about them in chapter 1, verse 11. I don't know who they are, but somehow they had told Paul, there's some drama going on in that church plant, that young church plant you got started. And then there's a good chance that the Corinthians had actually sent Paul a letter with a bunch of questions for him. And so when we read 1 Corinthians, it's kind of like reading or listening to only one half of a phone conversation. Okay, so uh, have you ever eavesdropped on someone's phone conversation before? I know most of you have. I, when I was young, I could, I could do that. Back when we had landlines, you know, you could follow the cord. Or you could even just pick it up and hear what they were saying. The youngins are too young for that. Okay. Uh, and the thing is, you can, you can still, even if you can't hear the other side of the line, you can learn a lot about the person on the other end just by how, you know, your mom or your dad or whoever is talking to them. Right? You can say, Ugh. That person is in trouble, you know. Or if you've ever been, you know, on the line with like Comcast or uh, the cable company, or uh, you know, uh, chasing down credit card fraud, it's like, man, these people, these people. So we learn a lot about the Corinthians' dirty laundry from listening to this end of the conversation. And so uh, let me summarize the first twelve chapters of First Corinthians, so you can see some of the problems. They were dealing with, okay? The biggest, the biggest problem the Corinthians had was that they were proud. They were proud. The Corinthians thought that they were God's gift to mankind. But the thing is, they were kind of like that weak, scrawny kid who gets bit by a radioactive spider and then suddenly has superpowers. Except this kid, once he has those superpowers, starts thinking he's really the man. He he gets really proud. And, you know, he forgets that he was just weak and scrawny. He forgets that it was something that happened outside of him. He didn't do anything to get bit by that spider. He was just, you know, being a little punk. But then now that he has these powers, oh, he thinks he's something special. He thinks he's always been this way. And this is the Corinthian church. Listen to how Paul describes them in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27. He says, For consider your calling. Brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. In other words, they were nothing special before God called them. But now, now they fancy now they fancy themselves sophisticated, intellectual, gifted, elite. You know, they are what every uh, Ivy League public university aspires to be. You know, they're, they're Tom Brady. You love to hate him. You love to hate him. And right out the gate in the first chapter, Paul pleads with them, to stop using his name and Apollos and Peter and even Christ as a pawn to get a leg up on other people in the church. He says in chapter 1, verse 12, Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? All rhetorical questions of which the answer is... No, Paul was not crucified for you. Jesus Christ is not divided. You are not baptized into the name of Paul, Peter, and Apollos, but in the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, and he is undivided. So Paul says, stop using the teachers in the church to create factions and followings that bring division. He goes on in chapter 3, verse 4, he says, For when one says, I am of Paul, and another says, I am of Apollos, Are you not carnal? Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos but ministers through whom you believed? As the Lord gave to each one, I planted, Apollos watered, but it was God who gave the growth. So the Corinthians were the kind of church that were divided over, you know, whether Doug or Toby was the better preacher. Over those who read Doug's blog and like it, and those who read Doug's blog and and they just... Facepalm. They were divided over whether homeschooling was better than Logos, or Logos was better than White Horse Hall. They had people who would say, I am of Canon Press, and others who would say, I am of Roman Roads. <laughs> they would have those who would boast about being an NSA student, because, you know, you're a Christian and you go to a Christian school. And then you'd have those who would boast that they go to the University of Idaho where you can get a real degree. They would have those who would boast and brag that they are part of the great CCD, Christ Church, downtown. <laughs> they would boast about whether or not they could play basketball in their sanctuary. We cannot. I envy uptown often. <laughs> when, when people are proud, they will find anything to boast and brag about, right? The Corinthians would brag about, you know, the fishy crackers after service and say, we have better snacks here. But in fighting, this kind of proud, foolish one-upsmanship was not their only problem. No, we have many more chapters to go, friends. We learn in chapter 5 that there's also incest going on. He says in chapter 5, verse 1, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. So there is this sexual sin in the church that would make the Gentiles blush. They won't even mention it. And yet they are proud. They're puffed up about this. And you think, what kind of church would be proud of the incest in their church? And the answer is, well, any church that refuses to discipline its members. And I tell you, most churches, a large majority of churches, never, ever discipline their members. And Paul says in verse 6 No, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Not a lot, just a little. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. When there is pride in the heart of the church, sexual sin is not far off. And so take heed lest you fall. Some people come to the church and they think this is a safe place. This is a refuge. This is a shelter from the world. This is a place where there isn't any sin. I'm sorry, friends, but you have the wrong address. In fact, we learn from 1 Corinthians that the sin inside the church is often far more grievous than the sin outside the church. And why is this? Well, it's because we have more light to rebel against. Jesus says, if that light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Look at the history of the Jews. They outdid the pagan nations with their idolatry. That was their one-upsmanship. And you look here at the Christian church, and they're outdoing the world in their proud tolerance of sin in the church. They refuse discipline so there was infighting and there was incest and we're not even halfway through this letter I'm gonna pick up the pace here in chapter six they are suing each other and going to law before unbelievers in chapter seven they got marriage issues the married people need to be told to have sex the unmarried people need to be told to get married if they are burning In chapter 8, they got food problems, strong brothers stumbling their weaker brothers by flaunting their Christian liberty. In chapter 9, they've dishonored Paul by not paying him. But Paul says it would actually be worse if you did pay him, because then they would think they owned him. There was no way they could give money to Paul without strings attached. They were too immature for that. In other words, he's like, you should be doing this, but don't. Because you would just boast about that too. This is the level of immaturity in the Corinthian church. In chapter 10, they need to be told not to drink the cup of demons, but to eat and drink to the glory of God. Put down the demon cup. In chapter 11, they need to be reminded about hair length. Hair length, y'all. They need to be reminded about headship, manhood, and womanhood, and not getting drunk at the Lord's supper. He says, "Uh, don't you have houses to eat and drink in? or Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? The one thing that was meant to express their unity, the communion table, had become another place for them to boast and brag and show off. This is the Corinthian church. And then we come to chapter 12, which is the setup for the love chapter. And chapter 12 is all about spiritual gifts. And what Paul does is he likens you, the church, to a physical body in which God has given each of you a gift. You're all a member of the body and you're supposed to work together, work together to build one another up. And then Paul Despite all this one-upsmanship, you'd think he'd be real egalitarian at this point. He'd be real democratic. But no, he actually gives them a hierarchy of gifts. Now think about these proud people. What do you think they're going to do with a hierarchy of gifts? Well, let's find out. Paul says to them, God has appointed these in the church. First, apostles. First, Second, prophets. Third, teachers. After that, miracles. Then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Then he tells them, but earnestly desire the gifts. Desire those. And yet, I show you a more excellent way. So there is this order of deference that is to be given within the body. Apostles are first and tongues are last. But Paul is brilliant here. And what he does is he he gives them this hierarchy and then he kind of preempts their corruption of these gifts by saying, and I'll show you what's at the top of the pyramid, a more excellent way. You really want to be the best. You really want to be first. Okay, I'll show you how. And Paul gives them the love chapter. This is the context of 1 Corinthians 13. Didn't sound very much like a happy wedding at all. Sounded like a proud, immature, divisive, infighting, boastful group of people who cannot get it together. That's why this is here. Paul writes this chapter to the Corinthians because they don't know the first thing about love. One uh, metaphor that I I found helpful for thinking about how the gifts of the Holy Spirit and love relate is this. Uh, Think about this. If the church is a car and the Spirit is the engine, we shouldn't just sit at the stoplight revving the engine. Okay. (laughs) If you've ever raced cars, this is what you do. The gifts are not given to just make fire come out of the exhaust pipe or do donuts in the parking lot. Very fun things still. What you need to do is engage the clutch so that all that horsepower can actually get you somewhere. And love is like the clutch that engages the gifts God gives and gets us going in the right direction. But see, the Corinthians, they just wanted to rev the engine. Listen to how loud This engine is, listen to how much horsepower I got under the hood. That is the Corinthian church. And if we're honest, that's us too, right? All of us are proud and boastful. Some of us just have a better way of hiding it than others. So Paul says that's got to change. The use of the gifts for these sinful, selfish purposes, that's got to stop. And so he's going to drive this point home in the first three verses. So let's move to the second part. And I'm going to read the first three verses of this passage again. He says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. So write this down if you're a note taker. Here's the main point of this passage and the main point of this sermon. Without love, you are nothing. Without love, you are nothing. Listen to what Martin Luther, the reformer, says about this passage. He says, Paul's, Paul's purpose in this chapter is to silence and humble haughty Christians, particularly teachers and preachers. Meaning, this chapter is in the first instance, not for you, but for me. This chapter is given to me, to Pastor Ty, to Matt Meyer. It's given for NSA professors, Logos instructors, for people who write books and lead Bible studies. It's for elders and deacons and those who come and stand up here and distribute the Lord's Supper at the end of church. Luther says it is given to us to silence and humble those who are haughty and proud. Paul says, without love, we are nothing. Now, why does Paul put it this way? You know, you're nothing is a pretty hard jab. Is, is Paul just being mean here? <clears throat> well, if he's being mean, he's being mean in love. Paul says, you are nothing because you really think you're something. The Corinthians really thought that they were something. And Paul has to say, no, without love, all of that is nothing at all. And there are basically two ways of thinking about the spiritual gifts either they are for me, or they are given to bless others. They are given to me so that I can be superior to you, or they are given to me so that I can build other people up. This is the paradigm of the gifts. So how are you, each of you, God has given you a gift, something. How are you using those gifts? Are you using those gifts? Are you too proud to use those gifts? And is there any love in the use of those gifts? Because if not, you're nothing. You're nothing. Now let's take a look at these gifts that Paul mentions here one at a time. So verse 1, he's talking about tongues. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I've become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Now, if you've ever traveled to a foreign country where you did not speak the language, you know what he's talking about here, right? A few years ago, I was on a Hungarian tram. Okay, This is how they ride these trams around in Budapest. And the Hungarians there, well... They're kind of a cold people. You know, communism uh, did not fall until very recently uh, there. And the Hungarians, they don't, they don't speak English. And so uh, they could carry on talking to one another all they wanted. But for all intents and purposes, I'm sitting there, and it's just a sounding brass. It's just a clanging cymbal, a cacophony of incoherence that I could not understand. Or maybe you haven't been to Hungary. But maybe you've had someone come up to you speaking Spanish or Chinese or or one of these NSA students speaking Latin. Well, they are playing a tune that, that I can't dance to. That's a rhythm I don't know. Now imagine you had the ability to speak every language on earth. And Paul actually goes one further and says, imagine you could speak not just the tongues of men, but even the tongues of angels, right? You have an angel tongue. What would you do with that ability? What would you do if you could speak every language in existence? I wonder. When I meet someone who can speak multiple language languages, I must confess, I'm impressed. <laughs> I think you're pretty smart. I think, oh, wow. Not just one language, two languages. And the more exotic the language, the more impressed I am with you. I think this is a, this is a, a brilliant person here. They're a, they're a walking Rosetta Stone. We could put you in the British Museum and take pictures of you. Think about this gift and how you could monetize it. I think there's a lot of money to be made in being able to speak every single language. You know, they'd probably have you on the late night shows, you know, interviewing you. How is this possible? You know, perhaps you could bring about world peace. This all the drama and the war. It was just one big misunderstanding, right? We've we've just been translating incorrectly. Or maybe you're super spiritual. And you think, what I would do with that gift, I would translate the Bible into every language so that, you know, Chaba doesn't have to keep traveling back and forth so that Matt Meyer doesn't have to go work for Wycliffe. That would be great, right? You could go and preach the gospel to anyone, anywhere, without any training. A good friend of mine, she's about to go to Chad, Africa in a couple months, and she's, got, uh, she's going to reach an unreached, uh, unengaged uh, tribe there. And she has to do eight years of language learning before she can share the gospel there. Eight years. And I think, man, like, for one, you must be pretty dedicated. But also, it'd be nice to just have the gift of tongues, wouldn't it? Cut out eight years of language learning. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be nice? You could have this amazing gift of tongues. You could translate the Bible into all the language. You could do all that. But Paul says, if you don't have love, it's like someone's banging a gong every time you walk in the room. You are a sounding brass and a clanging cymbal if you don't have love. Verse 2, Paul goes on and talks about prophecy, understanding, knowledge, and faith. And And all these gifts are wrapped into one person. This is a special person. He says, though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And so here now we come to the preachers and the teachers. Prophecy is not just foretelling the future. It's, it's preaching God's word. It's what I'm doing right now. This is what prophecy is. But this guy is, is not just a great preacher. He can also understand everything he's saying. He can also understand the great mysteries of the faith. He could explain the Trinity in a way we have yet to understand. Right? He knows all the order of decrees. He can reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. He has a photographic memory. He's read every book in church history. He's read every book. He has all knowledge. He is a walking library of wisdom. But not only is he a great preacher, and not only is he the smartest man on earth, he also is a man of faith. He can move mountains. He can cast out demons and heal the sick. He's got mega faith. He doesn't just talk the talk. He walks the walk. He's moving mountains. Have you moved a mountain? This man has. But Paul says, if he doesn't have love, He is nothing. And you say, how can that be? How could someone know God so well and move mountains with their faith and not be a Christian? And I say, well, Judas cast out demons, didn't he? Judas probably healed the sick. Judas, at least on the human level, knew Jesus better probably than any of us ever will in this life. Walked around with him, did ministry with him. And yet Jesus says of Judas, it would have been better had he never been born. One of the scariest verses in the Bible for me, um, as a preacher and really just as a Christian, is Matthew 7, 21 to 23, where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Paul's purpose in this chapter is to silence and humble haughty Christians especially preachers and teachers. If we don't have love, we will go to hell. Verse 3. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. So we've met. You know, Mr. and Mrs. Rosetta Stone, we've met the brilliant preacher, but now we meet the pious philanthropist, or as I like to call this person, this is the social justice martyr. And this here is one of the most deceptive snares of all, because by all appearances, you are full of righteous good works, and good works make a great cover for a prideful heart we can deceive ourselves into thinking about how humble and sold out we are for justice or for the gospel or for Christ when we are just deceived. Paul says you can go on and build hospitals. Go on, do the medical mission, feed the poor, rescue the orphan, care for the widow. You can practice that true religion and then go straight to hell. And if that's not enough, Paul ups the ante. He says, you can even go to the mission field, stand for the gospel, and be burned at the stake. And yet without love, Jesus will say, I never knew you. And if you are finding that hard to believe, I would just ask you to consider, well, the depravity of the human heart. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all. All things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can know it? Over the over the summer, I I went I went on vacation and I was thinking about whether or not I wanted to come back. I was thinking about whether I really wanted to do this, to to be a pastor, to stay in Moscow or go somewhere else. And the thought occurred to me that I can account for all of my spiritual activities in strictly carnal terms. In other words, I could give you a sinful and selfish reason for every Christian thing I do. And if you are honest, the same could be said for you. This isn't just about me. This is about you. Is there any love there? Is there any love for God there? Is there any love for God's people there? Or are you so nearsighted, you've forgotten from where you have fallen? One of the prayers that came out of me uh, thinking through that and Praying through it was just, God, give me a love for you. Give me a love for these people because if I don't love them, I don't want to do this. I would rather never preach again and see heaven than reach millions only to myself be lost. What profit is it if you you gain the ministry only to lose your soul? Is is that really a trade-off you want to make? It's not. So whatever gain you think you have from the gifts God has given you, I don't know what your specific gifts are, but I know that you are a very gifted people, okay? And I say that not to flatter you. I say that to acknowledge the grace that God is doing in your life. You are a loving and gifted people. But is there love there? Is there love between us? Or is there division and distinctions constantly being made, sinful judgments being made. Is there love there? I'll close with this. How can you know if you have love? How can you know? Well, here's how, and here is gospel for you. Saving faith is a gift from God. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Saving faith is something that happens to you from outside of you. You don't choose to receive saving faith, to, to, to take it. It has to be given to you by God. Okay? And here's the thing. When God gives saving faith to his people, It is always, always, always accompanied by real love. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. Saving faith and love are always found together. So if you have Jesus, then you can be confident that you have love. And if you have love, you really are something. You're really something. You are the stars that God promised to Abraham. You were made to shine and reflect the glory of God on the earth. You're something if you have Jesus. You're something if you have his love indwelling in you by the Holy Spirit. And so take heart. Repent of your loveless ways. And embrace Christ. This is what grace is. It's love that is given to you that you could never deserve. That you could never deserve. For in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And beloved, if God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do confess that we have been so proud and divisive. We have thought that we are the stuff. We are something special. And I ask that you would humble us before you. Because you exalt the humble. You oppose the proud, but give grace to the humble. And so I ask that you would give us the grace we need this week. Risk all this in Jesus' name, amen. One of the ways that we show love for one another is by gathering around the same table to eat the same bread and to drink the same cup together. This is only possible because we all worship the same Jesus who gave his life to make us one people. It is this unity in the same Holy Spirit that allows us to then properly use all of the different gifts that God has bestowed. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians twelve five, there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all and all. So as we eat together, consider, but not for too long, just how different you are from everyone else in your row, or if you're a family, the row behind you. We come in all sorts of shapes and sizes, personalities and giftings and more. And yet, despite all of our differences, we all share the same name, Christian, because Christ has made us one body in him. So come home and welcome to Jesus Christ. Um, All baptized believers are welcome to communion. If you are not yet a Christian, please abstain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for feeding us with the bread of heaven, your very Son. Thank you for the wine of his purchasing blood that removes all of our loveless ways and proud sins. May we eat and drink now to your glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name, and amen. 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 The charge is this. I want to challenge you to read the love chapter once a day this week. Okay, once a day this week. Maybe you read it together as a family after dinner or together with your spouse or just by yourself in the morning. Whatever it is, let's start learning the Bible's definition of love together. Can we do that? Good. Now you can receive the benediction.